there are no rules when it comes to grieving. And everybody is different and every situation is different. Hello, and welcome to What's Important to You, a podcast created by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning with only one goal in mind, and that is to amplify the volume and reach of diverse voices in healthcare. My name is Terry James Taylor, and I am your host. I plan to give you intriguing insights on various topics, including end of life and grief. I want to open your minds to new perspectives on often overlooked topics. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. For today's episode, we have a guest host, Kip Ingram, who will lead a conversation on grief. Kip has worked for Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice for more than 10 years and currently serves as Director of Bereavement Care, where he coordinates a staff of seven professional grief counselors. He works regularly with many diverse communities, groups, and individuals around issues of loss, grief, and coping. He has also presented his work on grief and loss at area workshops for medical and mental health professionals and local religious groups. Today, Kip will be facilitating a conversation with other bereavement counselors regarding myths and misconceptions around grief. Welcome, Kip. Thank you, Terry, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, We're pleased today to be doing this podcast in recognition of Grief Awareness Day on August 30th. And today we wanna talk about dispelling the myths around grief. And we're gonna look at some of the myths or assumptions or expectations which have been popular in our society. And like the title says, we hope to dispel them in the sense of not allowing them to cast a spell over our thinking about grief so that we can look at it and affirm it more truly for the wide variety of experiences that we encounter. So before we begin our conversation, I want to introduce my wonderful colleagues that are going to be part of that conversation today. First is Maude Harrison Hudson. Maude has been a grief counselor with Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice for 16 years. Welcome, Maude. Thank you, Kip. Glad to be here. Next is Susan Walensky, and Susan has been a grief counselor with us for 19 years. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Kip. And then Noni Ackman, and Noni has also been a grief counselor with us for 11 years. Noni, welcome. Thank you. I should say that all four of us have worked together for more than a decade now. We've had uh, many conversations, debriefings uh, about uh, people that we counsel with about their grief. We've co-facilitated many, many groups and workshops and other events. So our responses today are based on thousands of professional counseling conversations uh, with grievers over the years. And we wanna say first that we've learned so much from them as they've shared courageously and honestly from out of their own journeys. So what we say today, we are not wanting to be critical of anyone who had these kinds of thoughts or assumptions or expectations, but we are inviting people to reconsider the more open and diverse nature of the grief experience. So for today, I've organized some of these myths and assumptions we're going to talk about into four broad categories. First, the nature of the grief experience. Second, the nature of the loss. Third, family-related issues. And fourth, what you should or should not do. 
So first in thinking about the nature of the grief experience, and we should probably talk about this one first because it's been such a persistent myth across our society. And that is that there are five stages to grief. Noni? Yes, um, the five stages of grief really came from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she applied it to people who were dying rather than people who are grieving. Obviously a dying person is grieving the future loss of their family and their life, but it's not the same. And we think more in terms of tasks that people need to accomplish as they grieve. The first task being to accept the loss so in our groups, we have people tell the story of the loss and we do, we actually have them tell it verbally, but then we have them write a letter as well uh, to someone who might not know about the loss. And, and that's just one of the many tasks that people have to do. Thank you for that, Noni. Uh, someone else, Susan? One of the reasons that we give voice to these tasks and they were developed um, at first by William Warden, is that the tasks allow for us to help people understand the fluid nature of grief. Grief doesn't happen in a linear way, and the stages tended to make people think that was the case. With the identification of tasks, need, things that need to be done in the process of grieving, then people are allowed to acknowledge and see as normal the different kinds of waves of grief that come up, the um, movement of grief as we move through the journey and to understand they aren't going crazy like they might feel, but that what's happening is just a normal grief process and that they are in fact on the right track. Yes, yes, thank you for that, Susan. Maud? So I would just uh, say, I guess, to add on is that the tasks provide an opportunity uh, for the grieving persons to adjust to um, an environment and world where their uh, loved one is no longer physically here. But we certainly remind them that even though their loved one is no longer physically uh, with us, that they are always with them in their spirit, in their hearts, and that death ends a life but not a relationship. And also the task provides an opportunity for the grieving persons to think in terms of how they are going to maintain an enduring connection with their loved one who is no longer physically here. I think that in our um, interacting with families and um, such that um, many people are, the Kugler-Ross and the stages of, um, loss as it relates to actually people who are, who are ill and who are dying, that that model is just so ingrained yeah. uh, in, in the community um, at large, um, because that's what people will say automatically. I'm going through this stage or that stage of grief. Um, so having a tool to clarify that and communicate to them um, that that is not so much the case with um, grief. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Maude, and that we hear that so much in our society. 
And of course, someone comes out with a book every other year, you know, but they've got a six stage to grieving or there are nine stages to grieving. And the idea that we just passively go through stages just doesn't fit with people's grief experiences. Also, the idea that you can just feel one thing at a time at each stage, you know, whether you're feeling anger or then denial or whatever that might be, just doesn't fit right with what we know about grief, that grief is never just one thing in people's experience. It's more like a constellation of factors uh, that can be emotional, but also physical and cognitive and behavioral and social. So there are a lot of of implications and a lot of ways in which grief is expressed and lived and experienced. So I often think that we'd be much better off just dropping stage talk uh, about grief throughout our society if we could ever could ever get there. Uh, so thank you so much for, for weighing in on that one. I wonder about another one that's somewhat related to this and that is the idea that grief is a pathology or a sickness or an illness. You know, we sometimes hear this in people's language. They talk about curing or healing someone of their grief. Susan? Well, I think maybe some of the confusion about calling it a pathology has to do that in the DSM that we have begun to identify extended grief in a kind of pathological way. Yeah. Very few people fall into that category. So really grief is a very normal process. We have encountered death from the moment that life began, way back however long that was. So what we need to do is just understand the different components of grief and look at it, frame it in a very positive, normal kind of an experience. When people do have pre-existing mental health issues, that can certainly complicate grief and Grief can exacerbate some of those symptoms, which might be confusing as the mental health symptoms being a part of grief. And really it's just, they are blending together and it isn't so much the grief process as it is a recurrence or an upsurge of the mental health kinds of issues that person's been dealing with anyway. Yeah, so a lot of what we do is helping people to cope with the expressions and the things that they're carrying in their grief. We, in our own way, come alongside that, but we do not kind of take away their grief. We don't fix it. We don't try to predict it in any particular way. We're just there to try to help people as they walk that experience. Noni or Maude, a particular thought on this one? I would say that reassuring um, the mm. grieving person that their response to grief is normal for them, that it's not an illness, and uh, just encourage them to be uh, patient and gentle with themselves and um, not to allow themselves to take on labels and what have you that people around are, will so freely give, that grief is the body's um, normal response to loss and that impacts us, each one of us, in a unique and different way, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And when one of those elements is out of sync, it throws the whole system off. Yeah, yeah, and that reassurance part that you mentioned is so important because as you all know, the people we talk to can often feel anxious 
about the states of distress that they're experiencing. They wonder, am I normal going through this? Are other people experiencing these kinds of things when they grieve? Am I doing this right? You know, those kinds of questions pop up. And so being able to reassure people and reminding them that everyone's grief is unique and different and kind of affirming where they are in their journey is hugely important. Noni? We also have people who sometimes are embarrassed to tell us some of their grief reactions. For, For instance, they might forget that their loved one has died and they hear a noise in the house and they think their husband is back and they're embarrassed to tell us about that. And that's really normal. That is not an illness or you're not going crazy. It's, it's sort of like in your head, you know that they've died, but in your heart, you haven't accepted it yet. Mm-hmm. And so you might forget for a moment that they've gone. And it will normalize things, yeah. what Maude said. Yeah, and it takes the heart a, a while to catch up with the head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's well said. Thinking of another um, myth that we sometimes hear about in society or certainly hear from people that are grieving, this idea that we, quote unquote, get over grief. Maud? So, and that indeed is a, a myth. One never gets over a loss. What happens is that when the intensity that one feels, you know, the strong emotions and uh, feelings that are experienced early on, those feelings and emotions settle down after a while. But our loved ones are always in our heart and spirit, special days and times of the year makes those awarenesses more prominent and we are more in tune to them, such as um, special days, you know. Um, I um, sit in August, it's August, and um, remembering my daughter uh, whose birthday is this week, and um, just memories of her just kind of floating around. And it's not that I'm so deeply grieving still, you know, it's just the, um, the memories. And those memories keep us connected um, to them. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Maud. Noni? Well, just to piggyback on what Maud said, is we learn to live with grief rather than get over it. As Maud said, it never goes away but the pain is less and we grieve differently as as mom was saying it's in our memories and things come up in the world where we want to tell our loved one uh, something and they're no longer there to tell but we still think oh dad would love to know about you know his granddaughter getting married or whatever it is or that he's become a great grandfather They're just things that continue always. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes uh, the people we're talking to who are grieving may not necessarily feel this about getting over their grief, but they feel pressure from a boss or colleagues at work to move on or to get over, or sometimes even family members who can pressure them directly or indirectly in this way. But everyone's got a right to their own grief journey and the time that it's going to take. There is no one set time frame for that, no matter what our society may say. And closure is not really a word that we use in our particular work because we recognize that ongoing relationship 
uh, that someone has with a loved one. Noni, you were going to add something? Yeah, we uh, often hear from adult children who are worried about their parent mm -hmm. who seems sad because their spouses died. And the children don't quite get it that, of course, they're sad and that people grieve differently. And mm -hmm. so you as an adult child are going to grieve differently than your mom grieves yeah. for the loss of the same person. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for that. So shifting from the nature of the grief experience and some of the myths that are, are around that, uh, let's think about the nature of the loss and some of the assumptions and misconceptions that grow around that. Uh, what about this one that some kinds of loss are essentially worse than others? Like say a loss of a parent is essentially worse than a loss of a sibling, say. How would you respond to this particular uh, myth or misconception? Susan? Well, I would encourage the person to consider that relationship is really what we lose when we lose somebody. We don't lose their title of parent or sibling. We lose who they were to us. Yeah. So we might have a friend who we've known since childhood who was more like a sister to us than just a friend. We might have a parent who we refer to as our best friend. Um, we might have you know, an, another kind of loss that might not seem that it would be significant to somebody else and one therefore that we would move through more quickly in our grief. And it, it just doesn't work that way. The circumstances of the loss are part of it the situation as well? Um, was it a traumatic loss? Was it an anticipated loss? Were we able to prepare for it? Or did it come on suddenly? The age of the griever comes into play as well. Are, are we talking about a very young child? I did a home visit today where one of the children who've lost a parent was two years old. Well, that child doesn't know too much what's going on the older children a little bit more. So that's a part of what we wanna consider in terms of those children and their response to their loss. The other thing is if there's maybe some mental health pre-existing situation that is also complicating the loss of the person who's died. So it's really very individual. It's very impacted by some of these other layers that are all a part of our response and our need for support, maybe for a longer time than others may recognize to mm. get, get through that loss. Mm. Thank you for that, Susan. Yeah, relational and situational factors are so important, as you say. Uh, Noni or Maud? Well, I was thinking in terms of certainly um, in situations where there is the traumatic losses, mm. uh, such as suicide or unexpected death from uh, drug addiction or whatever. And these are um, oftentimes grievers who are having a really difficult time and they may see their situation as having more significance or the worst kind of uh, grief, you know, or saying to people, you don't understand what I'm experiencing because, you know, this traumatic thing happened. Mm -hmm. But everybody's loss is significant to them. And um, so we as grief counselors have an opportunity to communicate 
um, that to families that we're talking to. Yeah. Uh, and also in groups, uh, we can kind of lay that kind of to rest that, you know, your loss is more important. Everybody's loss is important to them. Yeah, yeah, well said, Mark. So these next two statements might seem like opposites, but uh, there have been contexts in which we've heard both of these. Uh, so I will just say them both together and get your response. One is if you weren't with the person when they died, the loss will necessarily be more painful. The second is if you were with the person when they died, the loss will necessarily be more painful. Noni? Well, again, it depends. You know, <laughs> the, there's, there's no, there are no rules when it comes to grieving. And everybody is different and every situation is different. There might be a lot of relief that you actually weren't in the room when your loved one died. Or it could be very painful that you wanted to be there holding their hand when they took their last breath. And so it just depends on the person and, again, their relationship, as Susan was saying. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. These next two myths or misconceptions are particularly painful for parents when they hear or feel these. So I'll take these one by one. One is if the loss is of an infant or a stillborn child, then there isn't as much to grieve because, you know, you didn't have them as long, I guess, is the assumption. Anybody want to respond to that particular one, Susan? Well, it's true. The relationship hasn't been as long as maybe other relationships have been, but there's so much hope that parents have as um, they go through pregnancy, as they anticipate who this child is going to be and they want to meet this child that they have been getting to know in little ways over the course of the nine months. And the loss of that, of that hope, of that dream of knowing this little person who's gonna grow into an adult can be tremendous. So we shouldn't, in any way, shape, or form, belittle those losses because the time of knowing that child is, is very much abbreviated. The death of a child who maybe a parent has had to undergo many tests and has had to, to go through very many medical procedures to finally become pregnant. So the loss of that child is a tremendous loss again for, for those kinds of reasons. So there's, there are many factors that feed into the enormity of grief that can accompany the loss of such a very short and brief life. Mm, thank you for that, Susan. And there is this other one as well. If you have other children, then the loss of one isn't as big a grief because you still have those other children. Maud? Well, all of the children are important to the parent. And um, the fact that you have other children um, does not take away the grief and the feelings and emotions pertaining to the relationship of the child that was lost. I think that is important for, for people around, for family and what have you, to respect that and understand that. Because um, that's one that I've heard a lot, you know, at least you have John or, you know, whoever. Um, still, but as a parent, you miss that child and that relationship. You know, I personally uh, remember many years ago, 
losing a, a seven-year-old daughter to a car accident. And people constantly said, you know, at least you have two other children. Mm -hmm. uh, but it did not replace or make me feel any better that I had these other children. Yes, it's important you have to show up as a parent for the other children, um, but your heart breaks for that child that you've lost. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Maud. So uh, shifting again a little bit to family-related issues and some of the myths and misconceptions that we hear about that. One of them that we hear is that the loss of a bad parent, say, quote-unquote bad parent, or a difficult relationship doesn't hurt as much. Any responses to that, Noni? Yes, the tricky thing about having a difficult relationship is once the person has died, then they're not around to continue healing and working on that relationship and perhaps getting it to a nicer place, a better place. So in fact, it can be very hard to grieve a difficult relationship because there's unfinished business that you're not able to do with them in person. You can work with a therapist or with a counselor of some sort on that relationship and working on it to heal better, but the person is no longer around to change and to be different with you. Yeah, thank you for that, Noni. And as we know, oh, go ahead, Maud. Well, I was thinking too that when there was a difficult relationship and the parent uh, person dies and the healing has not occurred, that it complicates the grief process um, because all of these unresolved feelings and emotions are still floating around. And it's the more of a challenge to get down to grieving that person. Yes. And I think all of us have talked about this over the years that sometimes not only is someone's grief less because of a difficult relationship, but sometimes it is even more intense or complicated mm -hmm. precisely because of the difficulties and the uh, sometimes regrets or unresolved issues, as Noni was saying, that still exist. Uh, so it does go back to the particular person and situation and relationship as, as we've been talking about today. Susan? So maybe just to keep in mind, because it sounds like that situation might be one that's a lost cause, is to remember that there are some tools, there are some strategies that bereavement counselor can work with somebody to begin to do some of the work that the person's not here for, but can still be done in different sorts of ways after the death. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, issues around forgiveness and how the grieving person might feel about that, issues around how they might still continue to hold that ongoing relationship and imagine conversations within that. All of those kinds of things are, are can be good opportunities when someone is grieving to work on some of those issues. Thank you. Thank you all for that. What about this myth that women grieve more easily than men? It has a lot of variations in our culture, but we'll just leave it that way for now. Maude? Well, we, we all grieve differently. <laughs> women um, may be more communicative, communicate more about their feelings, talk more about their feelings than men. Many men, not all, many men will 
turn to some activity or work or whatever and kind of work out their uh, feelings and frustrations in that way. But um, men too who are uh, able to talk freely about their feelings and emotions. Um, so I think that that's just one of those kind of uh, misunderstood myths that are out there. Yeah, that's well said. And I, we all know we have typically more women than men in our groups and women uh, will express themselves emotionally uh, more often than men. But it's hard to know if that's because that's how we've been socialized as men and women or how much of that has to do with biology. And of course, we'll leave that up to the biology experts to argue over that kind of conversation. But one of the things that I am grateful for is that we're learning from the LGBTQ community, our colleagues, our friends, our family, is to think beyond these binary categories of simply men and women, that there are identifiers that people have across our society that don't easily line up with those two. So maybe recognizing rather than particular genders grieving in particular ways, we should recognize different styles of grieving and recognize that anyone across the spectrum can grieve in these styles, a style being maybe you're more emotional and can convey and talk about your emotions more freely, or you may be more practical and look at grief as kind of a problem-solving uh, series of issues to look at. So recognizing those different styles is an important way, I think, of getting at this particular issue. But it certainly is a myth that women grieve more easily than men. We, we see many men and hear many men who talk about uh, their particular grief in, in a lot of different ways. All right, uh, shifting once again to our last particular category, what you should and should not do and some of the myths around that. What about this myth, if you stay really busy, you won't have to feel the loss? We do have a lot of people who stay very busy so they don't have to feel the loss. But the thing is, eventually it'll catch up with them. There'll be moments where they have downtime or quiet time and the loss will bubble up. Also, people sometimes stay so busy for years and then maybe they have another loss. And the first loss comes up as well as the current loss because they're still there and you can't outrun grief. Yeah, thank you for that, Susan. I think busyness is a coping mechanism that some people use. So that we don't wanna misuse it in the way that Noni has just referred to and, and use it as an escape. It can be a structure around which people can organize themselves, can fall into routine. Lots of times it, it provides um, a kind of break from the grief. Lots of times people will say that when they go to work, it gives them an opportunity to just focus on work and to put their grief aside for a little while, which is sort of a relief. And when they get home or when they have some quiet time, then they can tend to their grief. But to do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week would be overwhelming uh, for all of us. So we all need some kinds of breaks for our, our grieving time. And it's just important to create some balance. I think that's the word that I would use most with regard to this is a little bit of balance and some grieving time, some remembering time, 
some focus time and that would be a way to begin to move forward. Thank you. Thank you for that, Susan. Maude? I don't know if I have much to add to that. You know, as has been said already, cannot outrun grief because grief is the body's response to a loss. And um, whether we want to or not, at some point in time, we have to allow ourselves to sit with the grief. And um, it's a part of the I don't want to use the word healing process, but certainly it's part of the place of getting to a point where the feelings and emotions are more settled. And, you know, you kind of have to normalize to people that um, it's necessary to grieve, but it's necessary to allow the body or the system, the physical, spiritual, emotional system time to experience um, that loss. Thank you. Thank you, all of you, for the response to that one. Uh, what about this one? Uh, people may not say out loud, but sometimes we hear them acknowledge that they feel, and that is, if you're grieving and you feel relief or joy, that somehow that's wrong and you should feel guilty about that particular feeling. Noni and then Maude? Well, we hear that a lot, that people sometimes are embarrassed to admit that they feel relief. But when you've watched a loved one suffer and be in pain, it's pretty natural to feel relief that that pain and suffering is gone. So it's a very, again, back to, I think Maud was talking about normalizing what people are feeling. And that's a very normal reaction to stopping the suffering is, you know, seeing the suffering end. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Maud. Yeah, the, the misconception and uh, the myth that after you lose a loss, a loved one, that you, you have to be sad all the time. And so many people are in that space of not realizing that uh, loss and, and joy and celebration can coexist. Mm -hmm. um, that it is okay to, you know, maybe there's a new baby or something in the family to celebrate and, and experience joy, even though um, you're grieving, because all of those pieces are a part of life. Yeah. And so um, I oftentimes have to kind of uh, communicate um, to family members that it's okay to experience some joy in the midst of your grief. And, and what would your loved one want for you? Mm -hmm. And we regularly see that kind of combination of loss, as well as moments of smiling and even joy, when we do our groups uh, with grieving people, and particularly when we invite them to bring a picture or a photo, and they're, they're celebrating the life of their loved one or sharing something endearing about them. And often there are smiles and even, even a little laughter that goes along with some of that. And that's part, as you say, of the of the grief journey and a, a healthy part of grieving as people cope with what they're carrying. Finally, I, I want to uh, mention one that uh, we hear a lot as well, and that is that children should not be allowed to attend funerals or maybe even be told about the death. I wonder, Susan, with some of the Montgomery kids' parents, uh, if this is a particular one that you've seen or heard of before. Yeah, that question often comes up is, um, should, we, should we bring the children to the service or not? 
I think um, years ago, people just didn't consider bringing children to a service, but these days, more often, that question comes up and is a consideration. And I think here, as in the beginning of many of the answers that we've had, it, it sort of depends, depends on a particular family and what's comfortable for them. So it might have something to do with um, their cultural background as to the decision they made. Children shouldn't be forced though to go to a service. It should be something that they feel comfortable accepting. They indicate that they do want to be part of the family in this recognition. And we always coach them that the child should have an out if they find that once they get there, that being in that service and being in that situation is overwhelming and they don't want to be there anymore, that there's an adult or a person that can accompany them, give them a little chance for time out so that the parents don't need to be wondering what to do and feel torn between their attention being on the service and the needs of their existing children. So that would be my main consideration or reference to people is to go ahead and you know have a discussion in the family and decide what needs to be done and to prepare the children well for what it is that they're going to um, observe and be a part of. All right. Thank you for that, Susan. I so appreciate the kind of gathered wisdom of uh, my colleagues in this conversation. As we kind of wrap things up, is there anything else that you want to highlight that maybe uh, you felt like we could have emphasized a little more in this particular conversation, thinking about these myths and misconceptions? Susan? Maybe just to hold the thought that grief is, is kind of a, on a spectrum, that there is no real right or wrong, that there are many different responses, and that the most important thing that we have to do is to step up, to accompany somebody during that process, um, to be accepting of our own responses in that situation and to understand that grief has many twists and turns and that our role is just to try to do our best to manage what it is that comes up for us at any particular time. Mm, thank you for that. And that's, that's actually a nice summary that I don't think I can improve upon. So thank you for kind of finishing us with that. And let me just add, if you're listening to this and grieving, uh, we certainly uh, wish you a gentle journey and hope that you'll take good care of yourself with all of the ups and downs that are part of that. And know that we're here uh, for your support uh, in any ways that we can provide that grief support. So thank you for giving this a listen. A thank you to my colleagues, Noni and Maud and Susan. Grateful for your support and for Terry as well. Thank you so much, Kip, to you and your team for the 50 plus years of counseling experience that you have shared with everyone today. This was What's Important to You, a podcast by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning with one goal in mind, and that is to amplify the volume and reach of diverse voices in healthcare. To learn more, please visit www.montgomeryhospice.org forward slash podcast and download, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much for joining us today.